but yeah at that time i remember like i was addicted to soundcloud and uh i remember like finding a track that greg wrote and i featured it on the blog <laughs> you know i had no idea who he was but so at that time i used to write like i used to like <laughs> let me just interject with my uh, experience of that so i i i had i was just making songs as always but at that point i was like posting things on soundcloud fairly regularly i guess and uh so just made this thing put it up on soundcloud and then at some point i don't know how much later than when i uploaded it i don't know how i found this someone maybe someone brought it to my attention but i was like whoa this blog wrote about this and they're calling it my release wow i guess i have a new release and i posted it on facebook and everything and it, but then the the description of it too was like uh you know gzifkak's latest release does this this and but there was a part part of it in there that was just like it was like about anticipation and and hesitancy and then it was like wow this is really weirdly personal like this person seems to be seems to know me too well from this song somehow. I don't know what's going on here. Hi, this is Jack Callahan, and you are listening to 400 Floor. You just heard from Selwa Abd and Greg Zifkak, two electronic musicians who grew up worlds apart but came together in Brooklyn's budding techno scene of the 2010s. Selwa grew up in Morocco but came to New York for college and began producing music under the moniker Bergsonist. Greg grew up in Seattle, moving to the Bay Area and starting his band Eats Tapes, with whom he played and toured for years, eventually migrating to New York in 2009. A point of interest about this episode, this is officially the first married couple I've interviewed. Though if you play music together long enough, the lines do begin to blur a little bit. This episode has been edited from the full conversation, which is available at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor. Dot com. This is 400 Floor. Let's go on and get into it. Hey, Selwa. Hey, Greg. Uh, nice to see you guys, and thanks so much for being on with me. I'll start with Greg, actually. What was your early experience with music, getting into music? Did your, were your parents into music? Like, what, what's, kind of your, what's kind of your background with that? Well, uh, hi, Jack. First of all, thanks for having us on. Uh, <laughs> of course. Great to be here. Well, let's see. As a kid, I mean, my parents had a few records that I think that they had probably had since the 60s or 70s um, and some speakers that they had had since then, too. Just some, like, old beat-up wooden Fisher speakers and an old turntable. So we would listen to music, I don't know, not very often, like... It was a special occasion to put a record on, and it was either, I mean, my dad had some folk records, he had some old blues records, early country, that might have been all, actually. I don't even know if there was any, like, 60s rock, definitely no jazz. My mom would listen to the classical station all the time, um, but that's about it. I didn't really know anyone who made music or played music, so it was really just, for. I think, for me, the first time I heard pop radio was probably the first early impact that music had on me. I mean, aside from when I was very young and don't remember. Yeah. How old do you think you were when you first heard that? Well, my first real exposure to pop radio was I had an hour-long bus ride to school, and the bus driver would always play uh, Top 40, and so that was about 1986, I believe. So um, it was Madonna, 
um, some rap, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, I guess. Um, it was like a mix of like late new wave and like early hair metal and, and then like, you know, um, R&B, 80s R&B, whatever. You grew up in, in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, so that was in Seattle. Uh, and then I guess as a teenager, I didn't know anyone who played music. Um, didn't really ever go out to concerts. Maybe once or twice. There was actually an all-ages club owned by the brother of a friend of mine that was like uh, in downtown Portland called the X-Ray Cafe. So I went there at least once or twice as a teenager and saw, I don't know, some probably like grunge adjacent or maybe just weird indie New Northwest bands. I don't really even remember. But any like experience with like, I guess, popular music or like music as like playing music with other people was not. Yeah, I didn't really have any uh, concept of where music that was on the radio or recorded where it came from or who made it you know to me it was just stars and they were in some other universe yeah i think as a teenager i when i as i started to really i mean i definitely listened to the radio all through being a teenager and sort of started to try and pick out different things that i liked there was an am radio station on in portland that had kind of like you know played stuff that was not current and stuff that was just not popular like I guess it was sort of like an indie rock or maybe maybe college format, but it was actually like pretty pretty diverse and open for that. So they actually played some rave music on there occasionally. I think also hearing the sort of like Saturday night dance party on Z100 and all this like Eurodance, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, yeah, as, yeah, right, on Saturday night, I was like, what is this like crazy electronic sound? I, I couldn't imagine how it was made, you know? It was obvious to me that it wasn't made in real time by like fingers and, and hands moving. And that made me really curious about it. I heard a little bit about raves and about dance music and all that, and that made me start actually searching that stuff out at record stores, trying to find articles and books and stuff like that. It was before I really had access to the internet. How old are you? This is still high school? Yeah, probably 16, 17. Uh, there was actually a little interview with Moby in like the Parade magazine that came in the in the Sunday newspaper where it was just like techno essentials or something. I was like, okay, great, finally, awesome. I don't know who this guy <laughs> is, but it says techno. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was like Donna Summer, Kraftwerk, like all of these things that he thought of as early influences. So I went out and I found those records at like used record stores, sometimes even at Goodwill. There's a lot of stuff at Goodwill when I was a teenager. And I was like, okay, I, I can appreciate these, but they're not like what I was looking for, which is like something very pounding and like, you know, current sounding. And I was, but, but that did lead me down different paths, you know, hearing this sort of early synthesizer dance music things and whatever. And then I had a cousin, actually, that lived in New York and was going to raves. And so she introduced me to, she talked about Jungle and how she liked Jungle. And then she also took me to this record store, uh, Liquid Sky record. I mean, it was clothing, it was all kinds of stuff. And then after that, I started following the Jungle Sky label, which was the sort of Liquid Sky Jungle uh you know, version. And 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 there was, a, that that I was captivated by. I mean, it was completely alien sounding i couldn't follow the rhythms it had all these different samples in it um i was really into 187 early uh, black trans uh, jungle producer um and then uh, dj soul slinger who was sort of the boss of the label that stuff had a big impact on me i think as i was just leaving like you know 19 years old and really actually starting to want to figure out how to make yeah, music at totally. that point what, what year is that 97 i guess were you in college at this point 
I was not, I didn't go to college right away. So when I was 19, I was living in downtown Portland. I did not have internet access. Uh, I was going to a community college part-time. I started taking like MIDI sequencing lessons there. And uh, along with like anthropology and some stuff where I was just like, oh, I should, I should be in school. Let me take like a full load of whatever liberal arts and music. And then by the third semester, I was only taking music and I did, you know, whatever. But so I occasionally had like internet access there and I would look at some forums back then. I think I started to, I started to get, find like synthesizer forums, analog heaven mailing lists, and I would just find different music production forums too. And so people would talk about samples. I would like download a few samples and bring them home or whatever. I guess as I started taking classes at community college, I, the, one of the guys that taught there was super helpful and was like, you could get this MIDI sequencing software. I actually have an old demo copy of it. I can give you, you just have to get a computer to run it on. And I think he told me I could probably go find an old Mac Classic at a thrift store. So I did for like 20 bucks, bought a Mac Classic. He gave me this demo software and I had to set the date back so that it would still work. <laughs> some some but, stuff never changes. <laughs> yeah. the, the computer didn't have a hard drive. So every time I booted it from floppy, I had to assign a certain amount of RAM to act as a hard drive which the RAM was like 500K maybe, I think. But for MIDI, which was so lightweight, it totally worked. I'd take spend a few minutes getting the computer set up and then I would have this whole piano roll for MIDI and I had just started to buy some gear at like pawn shops and stuff and sequence. That's like the origin story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the crazy thing about those computers is like, okay, it, would, it stopped working, but I think I went back to thrift stores and bought like two or three more over the course of the next <laughs> year or two just because they were there and they were cheap. Nobody wanted them. They were so small, it was easy to just buy it, bring it home, it's all in one, you know. And then so, you know, I had an early Akai synthesizer. I got one of the first Akai samplers, um, a few ch really cheap FM and digital racks and rack effects, really noisy rack effects and whatever. And then I was recording on this digital eight track, which I had spent so much money on. I spent $350 and it could record for like one hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One hour, one hour total, like yeah, including yeah. like all that. Yeah. It was like some old big spinning hard drive in there. You yeah, have to yeah, basically yeah, totally. record it and then I would mix it onto cassette tape after that. And then that would be my master. Um, until I finally got a debt. But yeah, I mean, all of this stuff was before, I mean, in the MIDI sequencing class, they hadn't really talked about any of the history at all. They showed us a Prophet 600, but by that point in the 90s, the whole studio was racks of stuff that you just sequenced with a computer. And analog was starting to come back as an idea, like the Nord leads were out and stuff, and that was like, wow, they have knobs just like the old ones. It's so creative. And <laughs> yeah, uh, so but uh, but aside from that, I didn't have any exposure to how music was made, how like techno music was made, or dance music, or early '80s electronic music, or anything like that. And finally. I think what happened is I moved to San Francisco and I didn't bring everything down initially. I only brought, I don't even think I brought any music gear, but then I went driving around the country for a bit and bought some stuff at pawn shops. Ended up with like a Yamaha RX-5, which has a bunch of outputs and some analog drum modules, an old Simmons one, an old Tama one. And I was just triggering them from the outputs of the drum machine and just letting the pattern loop. And I was like, oh, this is how they do it. <laughs> it's just one basic sequencer looping. <laughs> and then you have hands and knobs and you move the knobs around and that's, there you go. <laughs> Thank you.
So at this point, was it a solo pursuit or were you aware of like scenes happening, you know, of like communities of, of people doing this? Well, it was mostly me. In Portland, I was going to raves and I would have occasionally meet someone who was a producer and it would be just be this thing like, oh my God, you know about gear too. And I'd go to their house and I'd see all the gear they have. It's all totally, completely foreign. I just didn't have any way to find out about other gear. They'd tell me, oh yeah, this is an 808, blah, blah, blah. This is a 303, whatever. So there was a few people around Portland uh, older than me that that had little home setups like that that were very intriguing. And it was just like, it was to- seemed like total random chance to ever meet anyone who had any idea what I was talking about. You're in SF. And you're fi- you're sort of like finding a community of other people who are interested in like gear and maybe like electronic music or whatever. In SF, yeah. not quite so much yet. Still, I mean, I was my girlfriend and I when we got there. I think through some of her friends started going to some shows that were pretty much like year two thousand San Francisco mod goth kind of a situation. Uh, I don't even remember what bands, but like to me, when I hear the word hipster, that's what it means in my life was that period. It was like it was like 1979 style or late 70s through early 80s style. Very much just I don't know. It seemed and I don't know if this was uh, this was seemed like it was big in San Francisco. It was definitely present in Portland a little bit before I left. But like, I don't know, white belts. I suppose there was some aspect of post hardcore if I'm getting that right, in that scene. But they had embraced, like, first 60s and 70s music and then early 80s music. And it was, in a way, it was like, oh, wow, here's this, you know, thing. It's like a spectacle that was new to me. But then it quickly became very stale, and we ended up somehow happening into, like, a total shutdown show or something like that, where it was just, like, in a basement in a commercial space, totally off the grid, and the music was just insane, and then there was like, you know, noise musicians. And then that same scene had like some techno DJs and stuff like that. It was like, that was the real underground San Francisco music scene that we had finally sort of broke through to. And we're like, oh my God, okay, this is where it's at. It was from like a sort of like, you know, that when we were first going out in San Francisco, it was like this kind of rebellious, you know, young people kind of uh, uh alternative music spectacle but still very much like in bars in clubs very polished and i think that maybe in portland that same aesthetic had been more underground it was like you know uh in warehouses and whatever but in san francisco it just felt extremely sort of plastic and commercial and there was like nights that would pop up with the theme and it's like okay this bar this club wants you and all your friends there and this is part of what is you know, selling all the alcohol, et cetera, whatever. So, and the music just became very stale and not interesting. I mean, it was whatever. It was nostalgic retro music, right? So then, uh, yeah, actually finding like noise and techno and like, you know, free jazz sort of coming out of the same predominantly white underground West Coast music culture um, was uh, was eye-opening, I think, I guess. there was It just seemed like it was much more free. You didn't know what to expect, and things were definitely going to, like, challenge your notions of what music was in all kinds of different directions, you know? Yeah, did you, when you got, when you first heard, like, I guess more, like, noise music or, like, yeah, free jazz, stuff that did not have a beat or a melody or whatever, blah, 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 like, was there, like, any gr- growing pains of being, like, this is bullshit, or was it, like, uh, did you take to it... Did you have any exposure to that stuff when you were like before then? I, I not guess. really. I don't think. And I, and 
I don't know. I think that for me, up until that point, engaging in music culture, whether it was just listening to CDs or going to raves or going to a basement show, there was very much a role that I was slipping into or trying to slip into or trying to, there was like an identity that I was assuming in order to participate in a certain type of music. You know what I mean? And I didn't, couldn't reconcile those with myself. I was like, okay, well, I'm listening to this now, but I also like this. You know what I mean? It's very, I think, naive and also, you know, an artifact of just whatever the cultural time period I grew up in was. I, I don't know. Things just seemed very, very segmented and isolated from each other. And I think that seeing that kind of music by people kind of just not really dressing up in a specific style that was supposed to go along with the music was a, a little bit like, oh, okay, yeah, you, this doesn't have to be... It's like, I don't know how to categorize it, and I don't know what it's what the people are supposed to look like. And I think I was fine with that. As soon as it came, as soon as I experienced it, I was like, I mean, I, I always loved hearing different sounds. You know what I mean? I, I never, I don't think I ever was, if something broke a rule, I wasn't like upset about it. It was like, okay, so this is a different thing now. It's not that it's not doing what it's supposed to. It's just a different category or whatever. And so I, I think I was curious to see all those things. And I also, you know, being young, I loved just being blasted by loud noises and hearing different kinds of noises and whatever. So what, So this was like... 2001, 2002, 2003, probably around there, yeah. And, and I still was primarily interested in dance music, you know, on my own. And that's what I wanted to make. It was what I was making in my free time. And I never fully really engaged with the sort of SF club dance music scene because a lot of it was sort of like uh, very smooth, like, um, you know, illustrations of people at the beach drinking cocktails <laughs> type of like yeah. just like the most polished West Coast house type of a sound, you know. Um, and And so I wasn't and. You know, in Portland, I think, it, it, like I said about the, I think it, things are in, in a bigger city like San Francisco, much more like there they're, they're, is a commercial context for a lot more than there is in a small city. And so in Portland, I actually ended up meeting, I met Derek May, I met Juan Atkins, I met Richie Houghton, I met all these people that would come there because they would play these tiny clubs and it was like a very, you know, small scene. And uh, Stacey Pullen, um, I mean, like th there was a, the and and at that time those guys weren't quite playing as commercially as they were, did later. I mean, Richie Houghton was Dex Effects in nine oh nine still. That was like the first noise music I heard. I mean, by like six a.m. in there with just the nine oh nine, I'd never seen a drum machine like that either. That you didn't have to tap in real time. And I was like, it's like a typewriter. What is he doing? <laughs> and uh, but by but I wasn't like I wasn't sure whether my ears were malfunctioning or the sound system was malfunctioning or that was the way it was supposed to sound because by 5 or 6 a.m. it was like sort of pure noise with like rhythm coming in and out of it. So there there was still I think a bit of that sort of there was like it was a little bit more uh, interaction in Portland in that sort of a way whereas in San Francisco the dance music scene was just in comfortable clubs and I didn't really experience much of it or know people that were into it except that in the mid 2000s I did discover this other sort of like anarcho crust punk like free techno type scene that would have festivals in the woods and under bridges and stuff like that kind of white dreadlock you know this is like proto burning man type yeah yeah <laughs> type scene. It, yeah they would have they actually was a festival I don't know if it's still going on the autonomous mutant fest and they would always find like national park land or whatever so it was never it was always free just they would just go camp wherever they could for free and then set up like 20 different sound systems 
and I don't know wh- how, but this this whole network of this other underground scene, like everyone had sound systems, homemade sound systems, cobbled together sound systems, and they all had vans and buses too. It's like I hope those people are still out there. I don't know what they're doing, but um, so so yeah, it was that was all kind of a mix. But I think it, also in the SF experimental kind of underground scene, there were a lot of people who had come from the the, the earlier '90s rave scene and techno scene as well. There was. Uh, you know, Kit Clayton was there, Sutek, um, John Santos, who's here now as a designer, but uh, th- and they all had come from like playing in clubs in Berlin and all across the U.S. And now they were in this sort of like weirder, more experimental, more freeform music culture in San Francisco. So it was cool to interact with them and you know get some influence from all that. So, uh, like, I guess now I'm going to ask you the same basic questions of, like, what was your early, like, experience with music, like, as a kid? Like, what was your, what's your sort of your, like, origin story? First, uh, hi, Jack. Thanks Hello. for having us. Yeah, my it, pleasure. it was really nice to listen. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you're finding out all n- new things about your husband. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's crazy because I love when he, like, he tells me about the past and I always like imagine all the scenes like I I feel like it was like a movie (laughs) it's crazy I love but um yeah I think my first experience with music was through you know social obligations when like you're little and you go to like weddings or I don't know any like house party in Morocco so it's very common that like Moroccan people like they would hire like an orque- orchestra or, like musicians to play live. So I think yeah, I think that was one of my first kind of uh, experience of like live music. They're playing like more or less like traditional Moroccan music. Yeah, they, they like there is some songs that are like very like uh, people would play them only for a certain kind of uh, like gathering. Like, for example, if it's a wedding, like, there is, like, a repertoire that people play. Right, right, right. Of, like, national or folk or whatever. It's traditional songs. Yeah. So, it, it's funny because, like, when I was little, I was sick of it. And now I'm trying... <laughs> like, now yeah, I was, yeah, like, yeah. You're, like, you got, you're getting back <laughs> into it, finally. <laughs> yeah. Like, now I, I appreciate more my culture. Like, at the time, I saw that as, like, a, an obligation. I was, like, why am I here? And it's loud music. And now I appreciate it more so like that's like early more or less childhood experience with just like live music or whatever well first of all this is my own ignorance of moroccan culture or whatever like what was it like in morocco in terms of like its engagement with like western culture or like you know versus being able to like hear like western music or whatever or like you know I, how i'm just i'm not familiar with what it's like over there <laughs> basically you know I, actually we like Morocco, because it used to be colonized by France. 
So we grew up with like French culture, basically, like I remember like every household would have like this fake satellite because like it was really hard to get like French TVs, you know, like the, the satellite. So there is a place in Morocco, it's called uh, in Casablanca, it's called Derbrelef. It's this like gigantic uh, place where people sell fake stuff, like fake DVDs, CDs, fake uh, receivers, satellites. And um, yeah, so I remember uh, my dad would buy it so we could watch French TV. And uh, I was glued to the music TV channel. Like th there was one, it's called, it's like MTV, but uh, it's, it's MC's music. So yeah, I... I I grew up, it's crazy because at that time in the 90s, there were like superstar, uh, Britney Spears, all that like wave of pop. So I remember with my cousin, we would buy magazines with, you know, those like teenagers magazines and at the back you can find like lyrics to songs. So yeah, we were, we were really like influenced by uh, like French music, but also US big hits. Did you ever learn an instrument growing up? Yeah, just a uh, normal flute, you know, the high school. Oh, okay, so you <laughs> you played school, in the school. You played in in the school band. Uh, we we didn't have a band, but it was it was just like uh, yeah, the school class. Yeah. Oh, like yeah, right, like recorder or something like that. Yeah, and it's it's funny because like we would just like play like French uh, songs with the flute. That's funny. <laughs> little, yeah. little yeah, little uh, uh, imperialist. Uh, you yeah. Know brainwashing or whatever yeah it was crazy uh, but it's yeah it's really interesting because like even now like i grew up with that culture french culture like i know so many songs like classical french songs and i don't know why like it's just it, yeah. yeah it's just from like young just hearing them like as a young it's, i mean yeah it is interesting like i wonder if it's changed at all now i don't know did you did they teach like moroccan music at all in school uh no like no, the, the only thing they would teach, like we would have Arabic classes, but we, we were so, it's so crazy. Like everyone was so bad, which was so, uh, you know, like sad. Like, so, so we had a hard time, like understand, like learning really yeah. well Arabic. Do you, speak, and, do you speak at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I speak it. But, but it's funny because like uh, the Moroccan Arabic, it's kind of like a slang like it's a mix of French words, but it's so sad because like Moroccan musical history heritage is so rich and yeah. So from early experiences with music at of social events or whatever, and then sort mm -hmm. of getting French TV, French and American culture, what led you to getting into like dance music and like more like kind of underground music? Yeah, that's a good question, because, like, when I was in Morocco, like, I was experimenting with, like, garage band. Like, I didn't know anything about make, how to make music, but my dad bought me this cheap, like, piano. So I learned to play piano with, like, when YouTube started. <laughs> it was like, uh, I remember all my keys had, like, the note, the name of the note. So I was experimenting with making music, but... My biggest influence, I would say at that time, was first uh, the music that my dad loved. And he showed me like all like like the Motown, you know, like Marvin Gaye, All Green. 
Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. So that was stuff yeah. that he from from as a kid was. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it, it, actually, because like he lived in the U.S. for like ten years. Ah, where did he live? Uh, in San Diego. Oh wow! Oh great! Yeah, and he was in a band, in like a rock band. Wow, amazing! With his guitar, so he always loved music. So <laughs> you already okay? So yes, yeah, so that's an important. That's a key element there. So you had like a musical dad. No, it was really like my dad was my best friend. So, and I loved all the music. Like he, he's like. Like a DJ, like he has this old hard drive with so many songs. Oh man! So yeah. you're you're totally following in his footsteps. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Cause you know, you remember when it was like the 2000s with LimeWire? Yeah, of course. He would download so many songs. Like he he was like a, like yeah DJ at that time, and he had this old iPod where he would fill it up with all the songs, and so. Every like my grandma would ask him to make her CDs so that when she has guests, amazing. Like, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's a whole network in between my dad and my grandmother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Your dad's pirating music for yeah. your for your grandma's parties. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. And uh, and um, she has like old hi-fi, you know, like the CD players, like boombox. So um, yeah, he was a, a huge uh, influence on me. And um, and also, my mom, she loved music. Like, I remember when the song Share, you know, like Believe. My mom, she, like, I remember, like, this exactly, how, like, she, she would pick up us from uh, school with my cousins and she would play it so loud and we would, like, dance. <laughs> and like <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's great. <laughs> she was, like, the cool mom, like, with red hair, like, very modern and a red car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's I, I think it, it comes from both. And then, of course, when I go to my grandparents' houses, like, they both would play Arabic music. So I, I, I think I had so many influences without thinking about it. Then in 2010, uh, I graduated uh, graduated from high school in Morocco, and I came to the U.S. I didn't know really about like the underground scene at that time, but slowly, yeah, it. I, I think it happened when I shared some songs on SoundCloud, and Richard Gamble he found it, and then he asked me to play live yeah. in a show. Oh, amazing. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Wait, so yeah. you were living in New York at that point? Uh, yeah, it was kind of like weird because like I came to study. So I was in Morocco and you know in Morocco like the French system can't get you to any schools in the US. You you need to get a TOEFL and, and a SIT and I, I, I didn't have any of this. So I came to the US to uh, pass the tests. So I was studying English and then I, I got all my tests and uh, the new school was the only college that accepted me because like I used to paint <laughs> and I submitted my portfolio, my painting. Po- it, it was kind of weird. It's, it's, it, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I see. I didn't know. I didn't realize that that's like the route that you took just through like painting. <laughs> to <Yeah>. get to, <laughs> into, that's crazy. Yeah, it was. It, it, I was so lucky that like they accepted me because no one... Like, I couldn't find any other school or, like, college. What were you trying to study? To be honest, like, I had no idea because, like, I just had my portfolio of paintings and I was like, maybe I can find, like, a design class or 
I, I, I didn't really know at that time. I was just trying to get in somewhere. You knew you wanted to come to the States. Yeah. I, I was on, in a fight with my mom. And yeah, the US was like the best place because it was so far away. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, I want to be as far away from Morocco as possible. Yeah. Right now. That's and, funny. Yeah. And also, like, I wanted to copy my dad because, like, he came to the U.S. And I was like, I want to be like my dad. So you were at the new school and you put a mix online, you said? Sorry, I think I jumped a lot of... Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Please, no, fill in the details, please. Because at that time, when I got into school, my school, that's when I started Bizarre Bazaar. So it was a blog, a music blog. And uh, I was still new. So I didn't know anything. So I would go to shows, try to find like music that was interesting. I, I bought my first machine out of Craigslist um, in 2014 or something. So when I uploaded the song on SoundCloud and Richard Gamble discovered it, I think it was kind of like way later. It, it, it wasn't on the, the first years. But the first years, like I, I remember uh, I would go to shows, I would... Especially, like, I would go to a lot of gallery shows, like, I would go to a lot of talks, lectures, sound art shows. I had a class with Daphna Naftali. She's a teacher at NYU, but also an amazing artist, musician. So you, so you kind of, it sounds like it's sort of like you almost came to that through the lens of, like, art or, like, the art world. Yeah. So were you into, like, did you know about, like, parties or raves or underground stuff at that point or did that come later I, I think it came later like i remember going to one it was like a mr disco tiki disco or something because <laughs> my roommate she used to go to those kind of shows and i liked it but then like i it wasn't really fun to go out because i haven't like found the music i liked really so i would just go out to go out like to be like oh i'm going out like i'm a normal person <laughs> but, but you at the same time you were in art school basically and you were going out to like gallery stuff and going to see like even like sound art stuff and like getting sort of the new york experience of like seeing more interesting weirder cultural stuff yeah. than just like mtv or, yeah. <laughs> or whatever you know so you were still while you were in school you were also making music yeah like that, that's when i first because, you know, when I had the blog, I was kind of shy and I didn't know, like, I, I could be making music. But one time I just bought, like, a machine out of Craigslist and then I was, like, experimenting. And also I had the class. I, I, I think I'm like Greg. Like, I try to take sound classes and anything related to music uh, in college. So I had the class with Zach Layton. He is amazing. Honestly, like... It's people like Zach that made me. Actually, that's when that's I I met. Uh, I was with Doug. Honestly, that's that's when I was like, oh my god, there's actually cool people in my school. Because <laughs> like through the other classes, it was so annoying. Like I couldn't actually make friends because it's, it's just so boring. But but through the music classes, like I met yeah so many amazing friends and and also like the teachers like they really like gave us you know like even. Mariana Maché, like, I think that's when I, I I started to, like, get into issue, project room shows. I, I kind of, like, volunteered there, and also I interned at Blank Forms and Harvestworks. Oh, so you were, like, yeah, you were getting, you were extremely busy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you definitely, at that point, were into, you know, 
experimental music or you know more underground music kind of stuff yeah I, th- that's what saved me because like I, like I was like oh my god I love what's happening like I, I was so um, excited with ev- all the shows and then one day I remember I went to like this restaurant called the uh, Suan and um, I met uh, Katie you know Katie O. Sullivan because she was uh, uh, working there and I was like oh I love your boots and then She was like, oh, I'm playing this show come by. It was like a secret project robot, I think. Oh, that's so funny. Was it Katie yeah. and Sean playing together? Yeah, and uh, Hieroglyphic Being. Oh, wow. And Alex from Queens. <laughs> wow, holy shit. I'm like, why wasn't I at that show? Maybe I was, but I don't think Maybe I was. you were oh, there. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So you literally... You were just like, I like your boots. And she's, and yeah. you just started talking about, how, that's crazy. <laughs> wow, that's like a classic story of just running into somebody. Yeah. That's so funny. So then you went to that show and is that where you first met people sort of in this, in more of that scene, kind of like the Bossa adjacent scene? Yeah, I, I think so. But I actually, when I was in Morocco, like I think a year before, I met Florian Kupfer And he oh, was... Oh, funny. Yeah. Yeah, he's like kind of part of it because with lies he, and he knew uh, Lily and he knew like, yeah, I feel like he was kind of like deconstruct, like, um, I don't know. It's it's like different kind of moment that happened. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, yeah, it's not re- really linear, but, uh, but yeah, that party, like I met more people and uh, I also started to, to go to Bossa more uh, con- confused house bookworms yeah what year is this around like 2014 or so 20 yeah i think 15 so. maybe yeah, yeah yeah but then it's crazy it's like as soon as i found out about this music i was obsessed like i like that, that would be my only like like social outings <laughs> So then what's the line from this to you doing Eats Tapes, which is where I I knew about your band Eats Tapes in high school, just seeing the name, being like, whoa, that's a cool name. Um, well, I think basically, you know, through this whole time, I just sort of been doing my own thing, making a few cassette tapes here and there and just handing them out to friends. Um, I, I did actually start jamming with some friends in San Francisco, too, that had sort of a synth and drum set band, but then... And it was kind of like not really defined what the parameters were. And then they they had a section of their set that was just synths. And then they would go into like drums and then guitar. And so one of them was my roommate for a while in this storefront in San Francisco. And so like we started, I just started jamming with them. And it became part of their like electronic section of their show. So that was... It was interesting to actually play music with people live and it was just but stacks of guitar amps and just like you know keyboards with arpeggiators and me doing drum you know electronic drums and whatever so 
but it it didn't really i don't think we ever did any recordings aside from some cassettes that we just you know didn't do actually we might have we might have there might have been some cassettes that we put out just through a local label or one of the band members labels i can't remember um but so at this time my girlfriend now ex-wife marika and i were living together and she liked what i was doing and really kind of wanted to sort of you know start jamming with me or you know figure out a way that we could make music together and so i showed her how to use some basic sequencers sh101 and some different things and we just started playing together and uh i i didn't ever really see a way to uh to move that project into what i saw as the legitimate dance music world and that was always that always sort of bothered me that it couldn't cross over um but i didn't really know how or you know what what would it what it would take to do that and and I never really heard anything else from the experimental side or the noise side that felt like it was pushing towards that territory until I think maybe it was 2010 or 2011. Uh, my friend Johan, who you may know uh, in Antwerp. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've stayed with Johan before. Yeah, he's great. So he he was on tour with uh with Container because they have a project together, I think. Or maybe he, him yes. and his project went on tour with Container through the, through the oh, US. Oh, yeah, Laser Poodle. Yeah, Laser Poodle. So I think I think that was maybe 2010 or something when they came through San Francisco and I saw Container and I was like, this is techno, this is techno! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. You moved to New York in 2013, right? Yeah, the, in between there, let's see, Eats Tapes ended in about 2009. I went to grad school around that same time at Mills. Right, at Mills. And that's where you, I was talking to uh, our Rose, Rose, and uh, he said to say hello. And so you you guys both, you you were there at the same time. Yeah, he actually convinced me to go there, or he was one of the factors. I didn't really know what to do next or how to sort of take music to the next level for myself. Uh, I, I, fig- I, th- I felt like I needed some study and some discipline a little bit. I was constantly working on modifying gear, building some gear, just buying and selling, configuring the studio, experimenting. Just I'm still doing that to this day, just constantly <laughs> just fiddling around with everything. So... That was good, you know, for what it was. I think uh, I would not recommend that anyone does anything like that, goes to grad school of any kind, unless it's free or unless they see some (laughs) sort of financial benefit from it. Because for me, it was a huge expense that I will either never pay off or will have to just bite the bullet and, you know. (laughs) He's not admitting to any, for anyone who's listening, he's not admitting either way that he's going to do pay it or not pay it. Well, what I'm hoping is that the after 25 years if I stay in good standing it gets uh it gets forgiven. So I may hit that milestone or else it's just going to have to be biting the bullet and paying it all off to get it out of the way. Anyways, it's don't take on debt unless you're sure you want to is the is the uh is the moral of that story. But as an experience, some of it was great. I mean, I think meeting people from a completely different music uh, background, lots of classically trained musicians and composers, and even just people that had been into like modern classical and 20th century music that I was absolutely unfamiliar with, aside from a few things, you know, basic intros to John Cage. I had had an intro to Alvin Lussier from a a sound art teacher actually at a for-profit graphic design college that I went to briefly, um, which really opened my mind. So I, you know, I was, I had some exposure and also at San Francisco state where I got my undergrad, I had taken some sound art classes and things like that, where I was exposed to a bit of like, you know, 
experimental 20th century music, but I, but not in, in the way that all of these fellow students at Mills had really been through. So a lot of them just like were very, very fluent in music theory, which I didn't have really have any background in. Um, and they also were very much in the, like, I think my relationship to music had always been more or less pop music culturally, because it was about communal activity, celebration, et cetera, whatever. I had had no exposure to the, to academic music or high music. And everyone in this context was coming at it from that angle, which was very weird. Um, it was really interesting. I was curious and I took like a post-tonal theory class. I audited it just, to, and I hardly understood any of it, but <laughs> just to try to yeah. sort of get exposed to it a bit, learn a little bit about serialism. And, but it was funny because it's like, to me, the relative simplicity of dance music rhythms and that's leaving out a lot because there is definitely complexity in certain ways but 4-4 was like not even a part of these people's experience or conception of music it was like conception one of music very, whatsoever yeah yeah the, it was like that was one very narrow slice of music that they ignored was all of the rest of music <laughs> that everybody pays attention <laughs> that to that everybody you know? like the, the, the music that <laughs> 95 99% of the world liked or the yeah. western world at least so and I think that on a small level there had already been for me like okay well boom 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 is really easy to understand and that's why some people actually Dis disrespect it even people that aren't music snobs or whatever and so i had already been through like okay well yes it is simple but it's also still valid because i also am hearing and feeling all these other different things and all these subtle variations and blah 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 so for me i'd already like recognized as superficially simplistic some of the forms of music i was engaging in but then also found ways to conceptualize and experiment around that i guess whereas at Mills, I felt like there wasn't even any consideration that anything could be done with those rhythms, sort of. Mm. I don't know. Part of it also, it, it, I don't know if there was actually even an active rejection in a way. It was sort of just like, okay, well, no, I don't pay any attention to that, you know. And it was like, in, in a certain way, there was like a, there was like, at Mills, I felt like there was, it was in some ways so open that there was no... No one, no one really fighting for anything, kind of. It was like, okay, well, yeah, if you want to do that, that's you, I guess, or something, you know? And, and no real, uh, I don't know. I, 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 this just could be my own experience. I think some people got a lot out of it if they really got the teachers, the professors to engage with them. And I, I, I don't, I, I got some good guidance in some very specific ways with things that I was doing. But for the most part, it seemed like, there wasn't enough structure and they weren't going to impose anything on you. You had to really know how you wanted to make yourself work in order to get anything out of it. But so during this time, and this can bridge the sort of two stories, maybe like, I guess we kind of left off, like maybe getting sort of starting to get into the dance music world. But could you talk a little bit more about sort of like after that? And then 
to meeting Greg in in yeah. that through that world or whatever. So so by that time, like I was going to shows, and I started like producing, making music, and just experimenting on my own. And Richard Gamble, he found one of the song I uploaded, and he asked me to play live with the uh, Katie and SSPS, I think. And that was my first live show. Where was that? It was at, at Transpicos, uh, the basement. Oh, that's great. <laughs> On the basement, yeah, the, the scary basement. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was very interesting because, like, I think I was like, no, I'm not ready to play live. I've never played live. And it's crazy that Richard Gamble, he didn't know. Like, my picture was like this, like, Medusa. Like, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, people yeah. didn't know who I was. It's like this- this she looks crazy. <laughs> <laughs> People actually thought I was a man because I, I didn't. Wow, show. really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. They Whoa. were like, "Hey, man, you you want to play?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bergson. You know, like. <laughs> uh, Henry. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, Henry. Yeah. <laughs> Henry B. But then, yeah. yeah uh, so I had, you know, at that time I still had my blog, and I would go. Like I remember James Huff. Like, I remember seeing his music online and I was like, oh my God, I love this. And he was like making music with like viruses. It was called Blaster. And I saw that he had an opening at this gallery in Lower East Side. And I met him and then I interviewed him and he was like, yeah, sure. So at that time, I was making music a little bit on the side, but I was also like meeting people and uh, interviewing. uh, Yeah, and keeping the blog. And, for the uh, blog, yeah. That's kind of how I... Fu- I mean, that's definitely how I first became aware of you was through that through that blog. That oh, thanks. From, yeah, from Bizarre Bizarre. Yeah. I, I remember your label. I loved it. And it was kind oh. of n- like nice how so many people that I know... You know, like everyone was related somehow. Totally. I mean, that's like... Yeah, like we were talking. Like you... When you first find out about that, get into that world, it's like... It really like blows your mind. It blew my mind, you know, like when everything sort of starts to connect. It's so true. Like, even Issue Project Rome, like, now when you see, like, who they're booking, it's like a a clash. Not a clash, but it's like a colliding. Yeah, people who won't necessarily know each other, like, in the past. But now everyone is like, yeah, that's that's awesome. But yeah, at that time, I remember, like, I was addicted to SoundCloud. Because that's where, like, I discovered so many musicians and producers like in Europe or like here and uh, I remember like finding a track that Greg wrote and I featured it on the blog <laughs> oh amazing you were like who's this hot guy making music no, I didn't know who he was <laughs> no I you know I had no idea who he was but uh, so I wrote about his track on the blog so at that time I used to write, like I used to like. Let, let me just interject <laughs> with my experience of that. So I, I, I had, I was just making songs as always, but at that point I was like posting things on SoundCloud fairly regularly, I guess. And uh, so just made this thing, put it up on SoundCloud. And then at some point, I don't know how much later than when I uploaded it. I don't know how I found this. Someone, maybe someone brought it to my attention, but I was like, whoa, this blog wrote about this and they're calling it my release. Wow, I guess I have a new release. And I posted it on Facebook and everything. And it, But then the, the description of it too was like, uh, you know, Gzifkex latest release does this, this. and But there was a par- part of it in there that was just like, 
it was like about anticipation and and hesitancy and then it was like wow this is really weirdly personal like this person seems to be seems to know me too well from this song somehow i don't know what's going on here and then and then just forgot about it wow and, and then years later yeah how long well wait what year what year is this like 2014 or 2015 maybe maybe yeah 14 i think that's so funny yeah. so you just so you just found it and then you wrote about it yeah and the, but the, you know at that time i was like trying to be like okay like poetical so i was trying to like <laughs> write these reviews but yeah it's like it, it it's crazy because i feel like at that time like the music that was in new york was way more exciting that, that, that than most music i would found from europe so uh, I would just like post all the new music, uh, you know, I found and and one day I think I like how you came to my show. Was yeah, I had just actually started experimenting with uh, modular video synthesis. I'd been into video for a long time, but this is now at the, around this time uh, video Eurorack modules started to become available. And so I started messing around with them and I was like, ah, I would love to make a music video. And I had just been listening to SoundCloud and Bergsonist kept coming up every once in a while. And I was like, wow, who is this? This is good. <laughs> and and then I saw that she was playing at Bossa. So I was like, I'm going to go 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 to the show and maybe ask if she'll want to do a video. But yeah, he like it's crazy because he came to me and he was like, oh, I'd like to make a video. And then when he said his name... I remember of a video he made for Nico because at that time I was friends with Nico, Gold Plus. And I told Nico, like, I, like I love that video because it reminded me of this, like, experimental, like, Japanese movie maker because he, yeah, whatever. But then I was like, oh, that, like, I, I made the connection in my mind and I was like, yeah, sure. And then from there, we started, like, uh, hanging out and he became my best friend. But yeah, it was kind of, like, weird how... Everything is connected, like. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's, it's pretty insane, and now here we are today. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I met, I met Greg as as everybody did back then. We I met I met Greg at Bossa. Really? Is that, is that true? I don't remember. I think, yeah, I think we met at Bossa. I met you and Andre at the same time. Okay. Well, maybe through like. Darren or yeah, Sean Darren. Or I think something. it was through Darren because I think maybe were you doing repair work at Control at some point? I was working at Control. I was just doing the shipping. I see. But okay. I would be there all the time. Okay. I would be there every day. I was their first employee. Darren, yeah. except I for met Darren, when he was about eight, eighteen. <laughs> oh yeah. We played in Iowa when he was in college there, and he came to our show. And but actually, I think that we had interacted online before that because it was just about like a Simmons drum module or something. He was asking me some questions. <laughs> but it's weird, like how before it was so easy to meet people. Like I remember, I used to be scared to to socialize. Like I would call my dad and talk to him. Like I, like it was a big thing for me to be social, and I learned it. I think through music like especially like bossa like like you, you you can go at any time and people would be there and talking to you like i, I feel like now we, it's impossible like not impossible but it, it's harder <laughs> it's a lot harder well it is like you know i have my own feelings about bossa but it was definitely looking back it's like you could pretty much go any night of the week and not know what was going on you would see people you knew and it was just like a pretty 
it was definitely an important part of my life for for at least three or four years, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it's definitely that's I mean another thing I mean God maybe I'll start another podcast just about spaces I mean yeah. without, you know like that is a huge thing so I'm doing this show at Chaos Computer tonight one of the worst named venues of all time but <laughs> it's a fan- fantastic do you, do you know what's the origin of that name for them I think to me the origin is uh, it's it's the name it's uh, on, the kind of name that can only happen when you run something as a collective <laughs> So I don't actually, well, I, I don't know. I mean, but. I'm always interested in computing chaos is the reason <laughs> I ask. I, I wish I could give them that much credit. To <laughs> um, I have to mention it just so it gets mentioned at some point. But Chris Miller, Gunnar Haslam's uh, series on cybernetics and surge patching on YouTube is incredible. Super captivating, very inspiring. I mean, he just really, uh, t- taking a look at the functions of the modules for their like mathematical properties, not not necessarily describing with math what's going on, but how each piece can be used specifically as part of a cybernetic system that manages itself. So he he really gets in deep with it, and um, he even relates it to Marxism and stuff like that, which uh, is a whole other thing. But um, their podcast was so good. Bit of Bitcoin Battle. Oh yeah, 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 with Sean or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. That they recorded in Control. To see it all, it yeah. all, yeah. it all comes full circle. Control is the source. Control is kind of the source. That yeah. I knew. I met Darren. Darren and Jeff played in St. Louis when I was seventeen. But then I re-met Darren a few years later in uh, at Hampshire College when I was there, and he played. So you know, when I moved to New York. 10 years ago 10 years ago in one week next week it'll be 10 years and uh, he i was he was someone who i hit up when i first moved here being like yo what's up because i knew about control and i went in and like then i was their first employee and then really through darren i met a lot of people definitely so i owe i owe a lot of my new york experience to darren and to other friends of mutual friends of ours uh the power of community it's a Mm -hmm. it's a powerful that's so crazy that's so nice like people like darren you know like like giving a chance totally totally yeah i mean definitely like darren is a true we i should just do a podcast just on darren actually honestly (laughs) interview all people all different people about darren yeah i think my 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 point of entry maybe because i at a point, my roommate was Mariko, and she knew Darren. Ah. So we would go to shows, and she kind of, like, introduced me to a lot of, to Budge Actualized. Like, she would go there. And Darren, too. Like, they, they would know each other. Yeah, totally. And you just see this guy, who at that point was probably wearing all white. When I, fr- when yeah. I met Darren, he was not wearing all white yet. Really? He, he started wearing all white, I think, in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, yeah. I think this this is this is great. I'm thank you guys thank for you. talking to me, and it was really e- extremely cool to learn about both of your early histories and developments, and kind of just like trajectories and how. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was yeah, so thanks fun. For where it thank all you ended so up. much. To talk about it. Yeah, of course. Thanks to Selwa and Greg for joining me to speak about their lives in music and beyond. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to 400 Floor, wherever you get your podcasts. To hear the raw and uncut version of this episode, plus much more bonus material, you can purchase it at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. 400 Floor is a podcast produced by Nina Protocol, where two musicians pair up to talk about their roots individually and together 
and reflect on the communities that shaped them. We'll be back in a few weeks with another deep dive. Thanks for listening.